Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26. And we'll be looking at the rest of the chapter, Lord willing, this morning. Leviticus 26, verses 14 through 46. This is an interesting passage of Scripture, to be sure. Made all the more interesting that we would preach it this close to Christmas. But I think it is a necessary passage for us to hear because it is the word of God and all scripture is profitable to us. The topic before us then this morning is discipline. How many of you this morning love discipline? It's your absolute favorite thing. Good, all right? We're not sociopaths. That is wonderful. Many of us were on the receiving end of discipline, uh, certainly as we were growing up. None of it deserved. It was all somebody else's fault, probably our siblings, no doubt. But we were on the receiving end of discipline. I was shocked when I did some prison ministry in Bible college to find out that 99% of individuals that are incarcerated are incarcerated incorrectly, wrongly. I uh, wanted to start some sort of a movement. This is, this is horrible, until I realized that was from their perspective. But we are not big fans of discipline, typically. And for those of us that are parents and grandparents who have had to administer discipline, it was in those moments that we began to understand what our parents meant by, this is going to hurt you or me more than it hurts you, which we didn't fully understand until we were on the other end of that. But before we get into this topic of discipline this morning, as with last Sunday's passage, there are a few things that we need to understand before we dive in. Discipline is not a singular thing. There are at least three different types of discipline. The type of discipline that we typically think of when we think of the word discipline is punitive discipline. A discipline that is intended to punish. A wrong has been committed, or we have offended the wrong person, or done something that someone did not like, and so the intent for that type of discipline is punishment. This is not positive discipline. This is not the good kind of discipline. This is discipline that is typically done out of anger and frustration, embarrassment, could even be done out of rage. And some of us that have been on the receiving end of this type of discipline, this type of discipline uh, looms large when we hear the word and it begins to sort of subsume the other types of discipline. And so our concept of this word is almost entirely negative because we have only ever seen punitive discipline. But there are two other types of discipline. There is formative discipline and restorative discipline. Formative discipline is holding somebody to a standard in order to produce in them a positive effect. We have in our home chores. My children love chores. It's their favorite thing. Not really, but we have formative discipline in the form of chores and different things like that 
that form in our children the type of children we want them to be. They could spend their time on other pursuits, but they are being disciplined, not in a corrective way, certainly not a punitive way, they haven't done anything wrong, but it is a discipline to instill in them a good work ethic, the idea of generosity and kindness and, and producing for the family of giving, not just taking. There's all different uh, ways and, and means and, and, and realities behind formative discipline, but it is a type of discipline. When you go to the gym, you discipline your body. Now your body might see that as punitive depending on your physical uh, stature and your fitness level, but it is intended to form in your physical body an end result. And then, of course, restorative discipline. Something has been done wrong. A, a line has been crossed. Something has been transgressed. Sin has been committed. But this type of discipline comes from a heart of love. And the intention of this discipline is to restore. The intention of this discipline is not merely punitive, for us to just to be punished, made to feel less than, to be driven down, but it's intended to cause us to come back to walking in the right way. It's intended to restore us to the right path. It's intended to redeem us and reconcile us in relationship. This is a very positive form of discipline, and it's the type of discipline that we find in verses 14 through 46 understand the heart behind this passage. If we read this passage without an understanding of the heart of God behind it, we can believe that it is in some way harsh, unnecessary, too far. But if we understand the heart behind it, and we understand our participation in the need for it, begins to right-size this passage. God's discipline of his children is not ultimately punitive. It is ultimately intended to be restorative and also formative. And so follow along with me if you would. I'm gonna read verses 14 through 16 and then 44 through 46 to kind of bookend our passage this morning. Let us read the word of God. Leviticus 26, starting at 14. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache and you will show, sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. Skipping down to verse 44. Yet for all that, when they, God's children, are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God, I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. This is the word of God. 
And so in verses 14 and 15 then, we see the need for discipline. And this is typically where our perspective of passages such as this gets skewed, get off. Because we do not see ourselves, generally speaking, as in need of discipline. Our sin isn't that bad. Our transgressions aren't that out of line. It was just a little white lie. It wasn't a big deal. We, we, we typically in ourselves don't see the need for discipline. As mentioned, as children, we rarely saw the need for discipline in our lives. And certainly not that discipline. That, that, was, that was unnecessary. Our children, as we discipline them, don't see the need for discipline. And yet there is indeed a need for discipline. And we want to see this in these two verses. Notice where the need for discipline starts. In verse 14 it says, but if you will not listen to me. The need for discipline begins in the heart of sinners such as ourselves when we reject God. Rejection is the beginning of sin in our hearts. It doesn't start big. We oftentimes don't jump from nothing to big sins with big consequences. It starts very early on. It starts very small. We just believe in a little way that we're God and we know better and God doesn't know what he's talking about and this seems a little bit out of proportion and so we just reject God in this little bit. We just we don't listen to him in our hearts in this way. And you notice the private nature of it as well. Those around us may not see it. We may carry on for years even in, in sort of a, a moral way. But subtly, something has happened in our hearts. We've stopped listening to God. There is an internal rejection. What does that lead to? It leads to unrepentant disobedience. And notice that first word, unrepentant disobedience. And will not do all these commandments. Now we might say, God, if your expectation from your people is perfection, if your expectation from us is perfection, then we're lost before we get started because God, you know how this is going to turn out. We, we are not perfect. We do not have it in us to perfectly follow your law. Even if we recognize the goodness that is inherent in you and in your laws for us, even if we want to, we can't and won't. That's not what God is talking about here. Because notice what has God spent the entire book giving for them? Along with feasting and celebration, along with a path for their entire lives, he has instituted at the very beginning of this book the sacrificial system. The concept of atonement is built into this. God knows that they're not going to be able to perfectly keep these laws. And so he builds in the reconciliation, the redemption, the atonement for their sin. So what we're talking about here, what God's talking about in this passage, is not the sins that they repent of and access the means of atonement for. No, what he's talking about here is unrepentant disobedience. As scripture calls in other places, sin with a high hand. It began in the heart with rejection. 
And now it evidenced itself in action where there is unrepentant disobedience. We're not accessing the sacrificial system. We don't think we need it. We think we're above it. And we're just going to act in these ways unrepentantly. We know better. God's ways are archaic. They're in the past. What does he know anyway? We've got a lot of scientific discoveries. We're progressive after all. We've advanced beyond these old, dusty rules of a bygone era. We're enlightened now. And so we walk according to our own understanding. Notice then in verse 15, there is open rebellion. If you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so you will not do all my commandments. Now there's open rebellion. What started as rejection in their hearts and led to instances of unrepentant disobedience has now become a way of life. And they hate God's laws and thereby him. They find God oppressive and restrictive. They view God negatively and not positively. They do not see him as light and love. They see him as darkness and hatefulness. They see him as an unchecked tyrant who only exists to make their lives miserable. They see in themselves freedom. They see in themselves the right way to go. And they are now living in open rebellion, a lifestyle against God's commandments. Which leads then to the last phrase of verse 15, but break my covenant. It leads to adulterous idolatry. God did not need to love these people. They did not deserve his love and affection. They did not deserve the covenant that he made with their forefather, Abraham, that of this people, God would make a great nation. And through this people, all nations of the world would be blessed. They are not deserving of the promise that will come to David. They are not deserving the promise that will come through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 of a new covenant yet to come. And we are not deserving of Jesus Christ the righteous who lived and died and rose again on our behalf. We are not deserving of any of this. And yet God loves us and has entered into covenant with us. And we are adulterous idolaters when we cast off God's love for us and cheat on him with other things. James says in James chapter 4, you adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is to make yourself an enemy of God? And perhaps we see this displayed most aptly in the entire book of Hosea. That is not just that we, oops, we have chosen to reject God. And so what does God bring then for the rest of this chapter? He brings loving discipline. The loving discipline of God. You'll notice that it comes in stages and we want to briefly see these escalations. God's heart is for us, not against us. The evil one wants to destroy us. The world system wants to destroy us. Our own flesh wants to destroy us. 
By the way, if anyone says follow your heart, bad advice. And we see that destruction throughout Scripture, but certainly in the book of Job. God gives Satan free reign to punish Job punitively. Satan goes as far as he can, as fast as he can. Our God loves us, and his loving discipline is not there to punish us ultimately. It is to restore us. It is to wake us up and form in us the character of Christ. As we go through this then, bear in mind this illustration. It would be like if we were operating a vehicle and were impaired in some way and driving recklessly well over the speed limit. We are operating the vehicle in an unsafe manner on multiple levels. And we're on a road with a cliff adjacent to it and we run the car at full speed into the guardrail. And thankfully for us, the guardrail catches the vehicle and stops us from certain death. And we exit the vehicle as the smoke clears. And we go around to the other side and we say, the guardrail scratched my car. That our response to discipline is almost how dare you as opposed to thank you. <laughs> for saving my life. God's loving discipline is not there to punish us. It's there to wake us up. It's there to remind us of the gospel. It's there to remind us of his mercy and grace. It's there to remind us of the relationship that we have foolishly abandoned. It's there to remind us of the way that we have left to our own destruction. And so in the first place in verses 16 and 17, God restricts prosperity and protection. And these five disciplines perfectly match in some ways or certainly match up with the blessings that God has given previous in this passage. And notice there's an escalation here. If you do not listen to me, he says, I will set my face against you. And you will be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. God does not owe us even the basic protection and the basic prosperity. That is not owed to us by God. God does not owe us rain when we need it, and does not owe us sun when we need that. God does not owe anything to us. But God, in his common grace to us, gives us these things by his grace. And so when we reject him, ignore him, and deny him, he will, not out of hatred in his heart for us, but out of love for us, restrict those things to cause us to remember the person from whom those things come. Then if that does not work, notice verse 18, but if in spite of this you will not listen to me, I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I'll make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Despite their prayers and despite their agricultural prowess, the ground will be as hard as metal and the heavens will correspondingly be as hard as metal. No rain, drought and famine. So we can handle perhaps for a time lack of prosperity, lack of extras, and maybe even lack of protection. But when it comes down to our basic need to provide for ourselves, hopefully that gets our attention. 
And so God is going to restrict even their regular food so that it will get their attention. But then notice verses 21 and 22. If that does not work, then if you still, almost it would say in the text, walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you. Notice in verse 6 of 26, he had talked about protection from wild animals, predatory animals in the land at that time. Now he's going to allow them more free reign. There is no peace then in their land. Certainly, not being able to provide oneself should get one's attention. But now one can't even exit one's door without being afraid. And again, God is not doing this out of hatred for them. He's not trying to spoil their fun or not give them their best life now. He wants to remind them that blessings come from a blesser. And we need to bow to and submit to and worship the God of heaven through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. We deny him and ignore him and walk away from relationship with him to our detriment, and he does what he can to lovingly bring us back. So notice in the first two, they are restrictions. He simply holds back his common grace, but now he removes peace, and then in the fourth place, he removes both peace, provision, prosperity, and protection. It sounds almost like an all-out assault. And if by this discipline, he says in verse 23, or not turn to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you and myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. I will bring a sword upon you. Enemies will come. And in verse 26, I will break your supply of bread. Ten women, ten households shall bake your bread in a single oven and dole out your bread by weight. They will be under siege. Their very lives will be endangered by enemy forces. And this is not because God hates them. They are his people. This is because God loves them and is trying to turn their hearts back to him. He's trying to engender in them repentance. Understand that everything comes from God, the good and the bad. And when the bad come, it may not be because of sin, but it may be because of sin in our lives. What did Jesus himself say to Paul? Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick back at the goads. When you're driving oxen with a goad, they may kick, but they kick in vain. And so it is with us. And God lovingly tries to correct, restore, form in us the character of Christ but perhaps one of the scariest sections of scripture then in this passage is verses 27 through 39. God not only restricts then his common grace in an attempt to have them repent, and then he not only removes from them the things that only he can supply, which ultimately is everything, also in an attempt to turn their hearts back to him. But now he reverses his presence. You remember in verses 11 through 13, he says, I will be with you. My very presence will be with you. And you will walk upright holding your heads high. You are no longer slaves as you were in Egypt. And yet in verses 27 through 39, he says in verse 27, but if in spite of all of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. Now as something is changing, and again, it is not that God is having a cosmic temper tantrum. 
What God is saying here is, I'm going to fight for you because I love you. I love you so much, I will not let you go. Not even your unbelief can cause you to be removed from my love for you. And so I'm coming after you. And I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And what follows is a horrific description of what it will happen to them if they run from him and abandon him. And in their history, these things actually came to pass. This is not just God telling them what will happen. God is prophetically sharing with them what is going to happen because of their sins. And again, in our car and guardrail illustration, they seem to be upset not just at their, the results of their sin, but of God's discipline. And yet understand, again, God's discipline comes because of our sin. It is necessary because of our transgression. It is not God's fault that he brings the discipline he brings in that sense. It is God's doing. But the need for the discipline comes from us as we have seen. But we not only fail to recognize our sins, we also fail to recognize the need for the discipline. God, just leave me alone. Let me do my thing. But like a child playing in the street unaware of the danger, God will not let us go. He loves us too much. And so notice in the third place then this morning as we conclude the goal of discipline. What is the goal of discipline in our lives? We've already mentioned it is restorative and formative. That is not primarily punitive. It's not just simply to punish us because God is up in the heavens and he's angry with us and enjoys smiting us for his own perverse pleasure. No, God loves us as his own children and we understand this in a small way with our own children. All of us as parents would love it if our children from birth obeyed. They were just amazing. They said yes instead of no said please and thank you as soon as they could talk. They were helpful and kind. They were productive. They did all the chores they could think of and asked us for more. If you as a parent enjoy disciplining your kids, set up an appointment with me. We need to chat. But as parents, we don't enjoy discipline. But we love our children too much to leave them go. And as much as we do not enjoy discipline, we do not enjoy the lack of discipline even more. We as adults know the end result of a lack of discipline. We know what that leads to. Our children can only see about two seconds in front of them. And for some children, that's even too long. They live in the moment. But God has allowed us to see much bigger and much broader. And so he knows, if I let this go, down the road, this will lead to this. I'm reforming in you the character of Christ. And where you go off, I am restoring you through loving discipline to keep you on the narrow way. And we know how much God loved us. 
Because the punitive aspect of discipline, he took himself for us. As we have read even this morning, Jesus Christ the righteous on that cross stood in the path of the wrath of God so that we will never have to. If you are here this morning, perhaps God is bringing you into relationship with him or attempting to through discipline. Please understand, God is not doing that because he hates you. He's doing that because he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And he sent his son to prove it. His son who lived righteously, died sacrificially, rose triumphantly all for your sins. Our sin made the discipline of God necessary. And yet God's love took that necessary discipline out on himself so that we would not have to feel it. Perhaps you're here this morning as a child of God and you are hard-pressed under God's discipline. You're running from him. Stop. Understand his discipline of you is not because he hates you, because he enjoys smiting people. God loves you. He knows the path you're on is going to lead to your destruction, not your benefit. And he's trying to bring you back. How hard are our hearts? The nation of Israel was so sinful that God allowed them to go be captive, uh, captured by the Assyrians. And the nation, the tribes of Judah the southern two tribes, saw the nation of Israel, their own brothers and sisters go into captivity, and they still didn't turn their hearts in repentance. And in a couple years' time, it is our intention here at Grace Baptist Church to go through the book of Revelation, and among the many themes in Revelation that you will see, one theme is the unrepentant heart of the sinner. They see the severity of God. They see the power of God, and yet they will not repent. There didn't need to be any plagues in Egypt. And there certainly didn't need to be a full 10, including the 10th, which was the death of the firstborn of all Egyptian families. It was the hardness of the heart of Pharaoh. My plea to all of you this morning is, do not harden your heart in the day of judgment. God's discipline, as your parents' discipline, which was not perfect, We've been disciplined and have disciplined out of anger and embarrassment and frustration. We have sinfully been disciplined and have done discipline. That is true. But there have been times in our lives where we've experienced both formative and restorative discipline from a heart of love, from a parent or a grandparent or a mentor who did not like the path we were going on, saw the end result of that path, perhaps had walked that path themselves and said, don't go down that road. Please. The goal, the goal of discipline, first of all, is humble repentance, verse 40 and 41. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me. And we see this in Israel's history. Men like Daniel and Jeremiah and others that bend the knee and not only confess their own sins, but the sins of their ancestors. Daniel is ripped away from his family as a young man and taken into Babylon. And you have two options 
when you're experiencing the discipline of God. Hate him or thank him. And David chooses the la Daniel chooses the latter. He understands the sins of himself and his people. He cries out to God in repentance. And God answers with grace, as he always does, which is verse 42, gracious mercy. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, my covenant with Isaac, my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. Not that God has forgotten. But despite the severity of their sin, despite the depth of their depravity, God loves them more than they can possibly imagine. And he does not forget his promises. When Jesus Christ cried out from the cross, it is finished, indeed it was. And as Jessica read that verse from Romans 8, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is a promise of God to those of us that are his children. And so, if you are here this morning and do not know God through Christ, come to him in faith. That is what his discipline is intended to produce in you. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, are you listening to him? Are you seeing what he is doing in your life, whether formatively or restoratively? Because the restorative consequences of verse 43, even though he forgives, the land shall still be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. We are not above God's law, and we are not above the consequences of our sin. And as we saw in our walk through First and Second Samuel, David enjoyed God's forgiveness. In fact, it was his only hope, but he also experienced the consequences of his sin. But oh, the blessed verses that we read at the end, the reassurance of God's presence. Yet for all of that, I will not spurn them. Our only hope is God. Our only hope is his mercy and grace. Because we are not holy and righteous on our own. We have no hope of perfection on our own. And so thank God for his mercy and grace and his presence among us. And so what is he trying to tell his people? Especially even with the fact that the judgment is twice as long, the section is twice as long as the blessings. God knows us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are in constant need of correction and reminders and discipline. And as his children, we have two options. We can fight against it, as we all did as children, and maybe still do as God's children, or we can submit to it and thank God for it. We can love him for loving us that much. And for those of us that do not know him, if you're listening this morning, perhaps you see the hand of God heavy upon you. And your response to that is to hate God even more. I want to remind you again, life without the one who made it is no life at all. That mindset, that path leads to destruction, leads to despair, leads to darkness. It is not the path you want to be on. God is not correcting you. God is not trying to get your attention to reject you. 
He's trying to get your attention to call you to himself. Do not run from him. Run to him. And experience his mercy and his grace. Let's look to the Lord in prayer as the music team returns this morning. Father, thank you for your word. For many of us this morning, all we have experienced, or at least from our perspective, all we have experienced is negative, punitive discipline. Father, help us to understand that there are at least two other reasons for and types of discipline. Discipline that intends to form in us the character of Christ because we are fickle and we are finite and we are fallen. And discipline when we sin that has the intention of bringing us back into relationship with you, fully restored. Father, for any that are here this morning that do not know you, help them to stop yelling at guardrails, but help them instead to be thankful and grateful for what the guardrails have done, that you've given them one more day, one more hour, one more breath, of mercy and patience and long-suffering, that they might come to you, come to know you. May they stop running even this morning, away from you and instead turn, repent, and run to you. You are the only hope for all of us. And Father, for those of us who know you, may we not despair under your discipline and see it as heavy-handed and unnecessary, but Father, may we rejoice in it for the times that we have sinned, you love us too much to allow us to continue in that path. And you know the end result of where that leads. And so, Father, you love us and lovingly bring us back to you. The book of Hebrews says that if we are not your children, we do not expect discipline. But if we are your children, we should expect discipline because godly parents discipline their children in godly ways. And then also formative discipline, Father. It is very real that many times in our lives we experience pain and suffering because we live in a sin-cursed world. It's not necessarily directly tied to our own personal sin or even sin against us, but just as a result of living in a world that is under sin. And even in these ways, Father, you are forming in us the character of Christ. And when he re was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he suffered knowing that this suffering was from your hand and was for our benefit. God, give us hearts after you, and let us be grateful for your discipline, even this morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.